Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that proves there's more than one way to make history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're talking about the seemingly endless rule of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The day was October 7th, 1952. Vladimir Putin was born in the Soviet city of Leningrad, now known as St. Petersburg, Russia. Chances are you've heard a lot about Putin lately, probably more than you'd care to. The Russian president has run the country for more than two decades, alternating between the role of prime minister and the presidency multiple times. He's been incredibly active on the world stage during his lengthy tenure, and much of that activity has been met with a mix of suspicion and outrage by the world at large. From alleged murders carried out on his command, to the illegal annexation of Crimea, to the invasion of Ukraine, Putin has been a very busy despot indeed. Today, we'll take a closer look at his early life and rise to power, and try to get a better sense of who Vladimir Putin really is. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin was born to working-class parents. His mother, Maria, was an auto worker and his father, Vladimir Sr., was a decorated veteran and factory worker. The couple had two other sons, both of whom died during childhood, one at birth and one during the Nazi siege of Russia. 
At the time, the country was still known as the Soviet Union, a one-party socialist state that exercised nearly complete control over all aspects of daily life. Putin grew up under the harsh realities of this system. His family shared a communal-style apartment in Leningrad with two other families. And even though religious practice was not permitted by the state, his mother secretly had him baptized as an Orthodox Christian, the church to which he now claims to be a practicing member. By all accounts, Vladimir Putin was a typical child from a modest background. He was an average student in terms of grades and something of a troublemaker in class, always throwing erasers at his classmates and blowing off math homework. In his teenage years, though, Putin was chosen to attend a school for Leningrad's most promising students. Around that time, he noticed that some of the other boys his age were much bigger than he was so he began learning martial arts in order to defend himself. He also developed a passion for spy novels, so much so that he visited the KGB headquarters while still in school just to find out how he could become an agent. Oh, and for any listeners who might not know, the KGB was a national security and intelligence agency. Most people think of it as the Soviet equivalent of the FBI or the CIA, but in reality, it was more like a combination of the two with a military and police force rolled in for good measure. On the agency's advice, Putin attended Leningrad State University and began studying law. Once he graduated, he immediately began working in foreign intelligence for the KGB. As a young recruit, Putin had very little influence on policy and mostly worked as a spy recruiter instead. Still, he gradually worked his way up over 16 years or so and became a mid-level agent. It was close to the end of his time with the KGB that Putin experienced what many now consider to be a defining moment in his life. It happened in 1989, when Putin was stationed at a KGB office in Dresden, East Germany. The Cold War was coming to a close, and anti-communist protesters had begun gathering en masse to call for the removal of the Berlin Wall. One particular mob had formed outside the KGB offices, threatening to storm the building and overthrow the communist agents who were holed up inside. Putin wanted to take action and fight back the mob, but he was told that the KGB could do nothing until they had received orders from Moscow. In the meantime, Putin and the other agents set to work burning pile after pile of sensitive documents in the office furnace, just in case the protesters managed to take the building. But as they waited, and waited, word from Moscow never came. Putin interpreted that silence as proof of the instability and ineffectiveness of the state. He later reflected on the incident, saying, quote, The business of Moscow is silent. I got the feeling that the country no longer existed, that it had disappeared. It was clear that the Union was ailing, and that it had a terminal disease without a cure, a paralysis of power. That was a difficult idea to reckon with for a nationalist like Putin. He had grown up on a steady diet of Soviet propaganda about how strong and resilient the state was. But now, he had gotten his own glimpse behind the Iron Curtain and saw what a farce it all really was. Not long after the panic in Dresden, the Soviet Union collapsed completely, and the regime Putin had been so proud to serve became a worldwide example of how not to run a country. 
That experience provides us with insight on why Putin has been so hell-bent to restore Russia's superpower status and to present himself as a political strongman on the world stage. It's almost as if he wants to make the rose-tinted view of his country that he had as a child into a reality in the present day. What might be harder to understand is how a middle-aged KGB agent wound up as a four-term and potentially six-term president. The answer, as is the case for many cushy gigs, is that it's all about who you know. In Putin's case, he had made quite a few political connections during his time as an intelligence agent. One in particular was Anatoly Sobchak, one of Putin's law professors at university who went on to become the mayor of Leningrad. When Putin resigned from the KGB in 1991, shortly before the agency was dissolved, Sobchak took him under his wing and helped him navigate the political world during the collapse of the Soviet Union. He even gave Putin a job as his international affairs advisor. Putin was still a long way from the presidency, but he worked his way from one civic office to the next until 1996, when his pal Sobchak was voted out as mayor. At that point, Putin was already on good terms with one of Sobchak's close friends in government, Boris Yeltsin, the first democratically elected president of Russia. Putin moved to Moscow later that year and began working for a government agency called the Presidential Property Management Department. Its task was to move all the assets of the former Soviet Union over to the newly formed Russian Federation. And since there had been no private ownership in the previous communist state, that meant there was an awful lot of property and natural resources to divvy up. As you might imagine, that arrangement was a surefire recipe for corruption. The agency's officials could award drilling rights, military equipment, and loads of other valuables to whoever offered the most in return. In fact, many people speculate that's where Putin began building his vast personal fortune which is believed to be in the tens of billions today. In the late 1990s, Putin reconnected with his roots by joining the FSB, the replacement agency for the KGB. He quickly climbed the ladder there as well, and in 1998, President Yeltsin appointed Putin as the head of the FSB. Then, less than a year later, Yeltsin promoted Putin again by making him the Prime Minister of Russia, the second highest rank in the country. That wasn't all, though. On that very same day in August of 1999, Yeltsin also announced his desire that Putin would be his presidential successor. Instead of waiting to see if the people of Russia would make that happen, Yeltsin made an unprecedented move. With just a few months left to go in his second term, he stepped down as president on New Year's Eve 1999 and named Putin as the acting president of Russia. As for why Yeltsin did that, the general consensus is that he was trying to protect himself. At the time, Russia was at war with separatist forces in Chechnya, who wanted their region to be independent, rather than just another part of Russia. The war wasn't going so well for Russia by 1999, and Yeltsin's approval ratings were dropping amidst calls for his impeachment. The theory of why he pushed Putin into the presidency seems all the more credible when you consider that one of Putin's first acts as president was to grant Yeltsin immunity from all criminal or administrative investigations. Under the Russian constitution, open elections had to be held three months later, 
but with Yeltsin's seal of approval, Putin was the clear favorite to win. It should come as no surprise then that Putin refused to debate any opponents and also abstained from running campaign commercials of any kind. When asked about the decision, he said, quote, People in the executive should prove their worth by concrete deeds and not by advertising. Advertising is all about what is best, Tampax or Snickers. I'm not going to occupy myself with that. In the end, he didn't need to. Putin won the election in a landslide, marking the first time in his political career that he had actually been elected by vote. His presidency was dogged by corruption scandals, press crackdowns, and even alleged political murders. Nonetheless, Putin went on to serve a second term, which was the maximum limit under Russian law at the time. He followed that run with a second stint as prime minister in 2008, but then a generous reading of the Russian constitution allowed him to return for a third term as president in 2012, that time for a length of six years instead of four. Many Russians were uncomfortable with that development, feeling that a third term violated the spirit of the constitution, if not its actual words. Russia's 2012 election was controversial in other ways, too. Rampant reports of electoral fraud pointed to everything from stuffed ballot boxes to supporters being bussed around to vote in multiple precincts. The results of the election did little to soothe those concerns. Putin was said to have won 64% of the vote, even though polls had shown that 57% of Russians believed a person should be limited to two presidential terms. In the time since, Putin has further consolidated his grip on the country, subverting its courts, media, and government institutions to help keep himself in power. He's jailed dissidents, imposed restrictions on free speech, and courted favor with militant groups of nationalists. Then, in 2018, Putin extended his rule again by winning a fourth term as president. He was so certain of his victory that he didn't even announce he was running until three months before the election, and then didn't bother campaigning at all. Under Russian law, Putin wouldn't be able to serve another consecutive term as president. He would have to take another break and presumably serve as prime minister again, before being allowed to run for a fifth term. However, in 2021, Putin did away with that pesky limitation. He signed a law that changed the country's constitution, clearing the way for him to run for two more six-year terms, giving himself the chance to remain in power until 2036, by which time he would be 84 years old. That's enough to make you wonder what a post-Putin Russia would even look like. His style of leadership doesn't allow much room for legacy building or plans of succession. He's so focused on his own survival, on staying in power and maintaining an appearance of legitimacy, that there isn't much time to think about how the country would get along in a future without him. As one of Putin's allies in government once put it, quote, We don't have this tradition of, okay, you serve two terms and you leave. We have no other tradition but to hold out to the end and leave feet first. Of course, Vladimir Putin would tell you that he's the picture of perfect health and that the day of his departure won't be coming for a good long while. But for the sake of the Russian people and for the rest of the free world, here's hoping he's wrong. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. 
You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again soon for another day in history class. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.